John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. Let me begin by reading those verses. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the feast of unleavened bread, which would culminate with the day of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That's a familiar story. And some of the other gospels have it longer. John gives us a pretty concise story considering how much time John spends at the end of Jesus' life. But this is the beginning of our annual celebration of what's called Holy Week or Passion Week. And it begins with Palm Sunday. The story of the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and finally permitted himself to be heralded as Messiah, as the King of Israel. Over and over again throughout his ministry, he would heal somebody and he would tell them, now don't tell anybody about this. And he would try to keep it quiet because he would tell the disciples, my hour has not come. Well, now his hour has come. He's been to Jerusalem before, but this time things are different. He is being heralded as king. And this is why I selected the passage from John to read today, because several times it mentions that he is the king of Israel. Fear not, verse 15, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. This is why they were celebrating him. This passage emphasizes that the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means anointed one, was a king. And there are other aspects to the role of the Messiah, but the Messiah, at least in their minds, first and foremost, was the king. And he would usher in the capital K, kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That word, kingdom has certainly fallen into the category of Christianese. We use that word kingdom a lot. And I think we use it in multiple different ways. And I think that that's okay. I think we have phrases that feel natural and normal in our mouths from using them a lot. But really, there is a lot of theological weight behind the idea of the kingdom. And there's also a lot of uh, good-natured disagreement, shall we say, among Christians about what the kingdom actually is. And I'm not going to come here and, and start knocking down popular phrases because I can't stand it when people do that. But I do want to bring a little precision to our concept of what the kingdom is today. So that when you say the kingdom or you refer to Jesus as king, that you know what you're speaking of. It's a huge topic, but I think we'll have time to get through it. It's so important for us to understand and there's no better day to talk about it than Palm Sunday when Jesus was hailed as king. And make no mistake, that is exactly what is happening here. So let's give a little overview of what the Bible has to say about the kingdom. It all begins with God's promises. God made promises throughout the Old Testament to his people. It began in Genesis chapter 12 when God spoke to Abraham. And he told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give to your people this land. That's why we call it the promised land. And that promise was renewed several times throughout Abraham's life. We've been studying through Genesis and we've hit all of these. 
Then in Exodus 19 and even stretching out through the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord renewed that, that covenant and that promise with the nation of Israel. And Moses said, I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt and bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? God was sending them into that promised land. And then to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made another promise where he said, Your son, David, will sit on the throne forever. You will never lack a man to sit on the throne before me. An everlasting kingdom. And then in the prophets, those things were repeated and expanded. So it's important to know this, that God made a promise of land. He made a promise to be with them and to help them in that land and that there would be a king reigning over that land, the son of David. When you hear that term, son of David, it's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the prophets that would later refer to it. Even in the exile, after the children of Israel had been kicked out of their land, they were no longer in the promised land. So has the promise failed? Have we lost the promise? Well, the prophets come back with a resounding, no, you have not, that God is going to still restore the kingdom. You know this passage. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We usually read it around Christmas time. But talking about the Messiah. Now, you've heard this, and we kind of run through it at Christmas time. But keep this in, in, in mind in context of a kingdom and a ruler. Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Government, throne, kingdom. These are political words. And all of a sudden we just got uncomfortable. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. This is the understanding of the kingdom that the Old Testament gives us. And it is an important rule of Bible study that when the New Testament is using concepts and ideas that are found in the Old Testament, that's how you've got to define them. Because what happens is we're very familiar with the New Testament. We begin to interpret it based on how we were raised or the traditions that we were brought up in or even our own ideas. Then we come back to the Old Testament and we talk about how the Old Testament just got it all wrong. Well, really, that's very rarely the case. When Jesus and John the Baptist and others came and began to proclaim the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, that meant something to these people. We're like, well, what is the king? What is that? No, oh, they knew exactly what that was. They knew what the kingdom meant. And this is how the promise continued, that John the Baptist Went down, started baptizing folks. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent and get ready because the king is coming. Make way. And here comes Jesus. Same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he sends out his disciples. And what is he telling them to proclaim? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Jews understood this. John 6, 15 said they tried to make Jesus king by force. You're going to be king and you're going to like it, Jesus. We, you, you don't get to talk about the kingdom and then not deliver a kingdom, Jesus. And we've talked about this at length before, but they were under the thumb of Rome at this time. The, the Israelites had no kingdom at this point. They were a vassal state of a Gentile empire. So somebody who shows up, start talking about kingdoms, is going to get some people very, very excited. It's also going to make some other people very, very nervous who are dependent on the system that existed at the time. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus went out of his way to herald the kingdom. He's riding on a donkey. 
You know what that's from. That's from the book of Zechariah. We're going to read it in a minute. The king is coming to you riding on a donkey. They were singing Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118. This was one of the songs that they would sing as they went up to Passover to worship. And you read it, you guys. It's amazing. It's all about the king will come and he will establish his kingdom. And the cornerstone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it's a very kingdom-heavy psalm. And we read it and we read it spiritually because that's how we apply it. But you need to understand how it was written and how it was understood at the time. And then they were waving the palm branches, which we've talked about this before. The palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean revolt, which is when Israel had finally thrown off Greece and ruled themselves for a hundred years. So waving palm branches is not just a nice thing to do. Waving palm branches was a nationalist symbol. Israel forever waving the palm branches which is why we're not going to get into it today. The Pharisees start saying, would you shut up your disciples? Don't you know what they're about to bring down on us? This is why they got together with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're talking, Rome is going to crush us if this guy continues, because he's stirring up all these people. And that was their justification for putting him to death. Let's read this passage from Zechariah that verse 15 makes reference to. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. So hear the part about the donkey, but you know that part. Listen to what's around it. And recognize what the donkey would have symbolized. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when they see Jesus riding on a donkey, this called to their minds the prophecy of when Messiah would extend his kingdom around the world. And they got a little excited about it. That's why they ran out with palm branches. They were expecting a national, actual kingdom. And in many ways, they were right to expect that. Because that is what the Old Testament prophesied. But what happened? At the end of the week, they wouldn't be shouting Hosanna anymore, would they? What would they be shouting on Friday? Crucify. And there's those chilling words that we read in John 19, 15, where Pilate holds up the battered Jesus and says, Shall I crucify your king? And they say, We have no king but Caesar. It gives me chills every single time. Israel rejected their king. He was there. He was on the donkey. It was everything that had been prophesied. And they said, we'll take Caesar over this guy. And thereby, they rejected their kingdom. It, it is hard to overemphasize how important this is. And I talk about it every Palm Sunday because it is a neglected doctrine, but it is the key to just about the whole New Testament and why the church is the way it is. It is like when Israel refused to enter the promised land. That's how you've got to compare this. They were brought to the promised land. The 10 spies brought back a bad report and they said that they're going to crush us. They're like giants. And they said, forget it. We're not going in. And so God condemned them to wander the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation had died off. So we've seen this kind of thing before. They refused to enter the kingdom, even though it was brought right to their gates. So no kingdom was established. And Jesus 
pronounces judgment on them in Matthew 23. This is another one of the most key passages to know. I'm giving a lot of references today. They're up on the screen so you can write them down and I'm not going to read them all, but they're all important. This is what Jesus said while he was riding on this donkey. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is lamenting because he knows what's about to happen. Jesus could see right through the crowds, his whole ministry. He had that discernment of the Holy Spirit too. He says in some places he didn't commit himself to people because he knew the hearts of all men. So he knew that this was all for show. They weren't celebrating him. They were celebrating a political and military victory, which was part of what Jesus will eventually provide, but they were missing the most important keys. And they were going to nail him to a cross in less than a week. So he says, your house is left to you desolate. This is not the doctrine's official name, but I'm going to go ahead and give it the official name because I think it's so important. This is what's called the desolation of Israel, which we are experiencing right now. In A.D. 70, so 40 years after this, I think that's a significant number. 40 years after this, Titus, under Emperor Vespasian, marched into Jerusalem and laid waste to the city. And the Jews were scattered all around the world, as they largely are to this day. There was no Israel until the 1940s, which is why everybody got very excited around the 1940s, because it was such a significant thing. Good students of the Bible, like Charles Spurgeon and others, knew that that was going to happen and preached about it. But then it finally did. But Israel has been left not only desolate physically, but spiritually. Romans 11.25 is another one of those key verses. Paul says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel, that God blinded the eyes of the Jews. Now, partial hardening means Jews can still get saved, but there will never be that national repentance that the Lord is hoping for until later. He hardened their hearts much in the same way, ironically, as he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Until Jesus says, You will not see me again. Now, some people want to put a period there. Say, see, that's it. No more Israel. We're all done. But he says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what's the irony there? What were they singing that day? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like, well, Lord, they've been saying it. But sort of like with your kids, say you're sorry. Sorry. Okay, apologize again. I said I was sorry. Yeah, but you didn't mean it. <laughs> you were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but Jesus says, until you are ready to herald me as king, you are not going to see your kingdom. Tragedy that Israel rejected their kingdom. But here's the deal. The story went on because here we are. Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday and the church began. And here's something very important that you must understand because I've heard this taught Alternately, unfortunately, the disciples went out preaching the same message of the kingdom that Jesus had been proclaiming. Look at the book of Acts. And I've got all the references up here for you to look at. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus raised from the dead and began to talk about the kingdom. Chapter 8, verse 12. They were preaching to the Samaritans the kingdom. Chapter 14, verse 22, 19, verse 8, 20, verse 25, two verses from chapter 28, talking about what Paul was preaching in Rome, the kingdom. 
This lets us know that the kingdom has not been canceled. The kingdom has been delayed. And this is where there is some difference of opinion, but I think we're right. And I think we stand on very solid biblical ground. Because they were proclaiming the kingdom to come. Even before his ascension, the disciples were asking Jesus about it, weren't they? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They're on the Mount of Olives. He's about to ascend to heaven, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore what? The kingdom to Israel. Now, did Jesus say, no, you guys, they missed it. That's it. What did he say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set up on his own authority. The message of the kingdom. What the Jews failed to realize on Palm Sunday that caused them to miss their Messiah was the redemptive aspect of the kingdom, the spiritual side. And wasn't this Jesus' whole ministry? Wasn't this John the Baptist's ministry? John the Baptist was the one to, to show up and call out everyone's hypocrisy. Because he said, don't think you can say, well, I'm a son of Abraham. And I can picture, you know, Harry John picking up this rock. God could turn these stones into sons of Abraham. And he tosses it over his head. It clatters. And they go, well, that just seems un unseemly to preach such things. But then Jesus shows up. And was he any different? No way. He was calling people on the carpet to turn their hearts to him. And what was Jesus always preaching? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. And everything he was teaching, for the most part, I won't say everything, but especially early on, were moral teachings. He was trying to teach the spiritual redemptive aspect of the kingdom. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 talk about the Messiah, the coming king. But they describe him as a suffering Messiah. To provide a sacrifice, to provide atonement for all the people. This was always part of the kingdom, but the Jews weren't interested in that. They weren't even thinking about that, or they would never have crucified him. Not only that, but the Bible says that the nations would be blessed through the son of Abraham. The Lord said this to Abraham. He said it to Isaac. He said it to Jacob. He said it to all the Israelites after. In you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. That word for nations is a Hebrew word, goyim. It's also a Yiddish word. You maybe have heard it. It means nations. It means Gentiles. So when you read that, you could almost read it, in you all the Gentiles of the world shall be blessed. But this was something the Jews wanted nothing to do with. They wanted the Gentiles out. They couldn't stand it when Jesus spent time with Gentiles. Even in the early church, they needed to take time to learn that. Even though that was the, the, basically the whole part of their ministry. Get out there and tell the whole nations, tell the whole world. And then when God finally got Peter... Through the, the vision of the sheet. Remember that? The sheet being lowered down with all the animals, all the yucky critters in it. And he said, hey, eat those things. He said, no, I, I would never eat something unclean. And God says, if I've called it clean, don't you call it unclean. It wasn't about snakes and scorpions here. He was talking about your attitude about other people. And that same day, somebody shows up and says, this Roman centurion Cornelius wants to meet you. And then Peter goes over to his house and preaches the gospel. He doesn't even get to the altar call. The Holy Spirit falls on them and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. Then they have a little huddle and they're like, I guess we better baptize them. Because, I mean, they already have the Spirit, so who are we? And then Peter shows up in Jerusalem again and there's a whole contingent of saved Pharisees who say, we heard you had a meal in the home of a Gentile. This is not acceptable. So you see, even though they were saved, they still had some learning to do, huh? 
And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, and Peter told them the story, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Well, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is the mission of the church. Take this message of the kingdom and take it beyond the borders. Take it to the whole world. Let them know that my kingdom is coming. Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and some of the other minor prophets talk about how the kingdom of God is not just going to be to benefit Israel, it's going to benefit the whole world. And nations like Egypt and Assyria will come flocking to worship in Jerusalem. So the Lord says, get out there and proclaim it. That's what's happening now. Romans 11.25 says that that hardening, that partial hardening of Israel will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is using the church to reach the Gentiles with salvation. Because the kingdom was prophesied not just to bring glory to Israel, but salvation to the nations, forgiveness of sins, an end to wickedness. And that's the same message that we carry today. The redemptive aspect of the kingdom. But the kingdom is still coming. Israel's rejection delayed it, just as their entrance to the promised land was delayed by their refusal to enter it. And a fun thought experiment, and it can never go beyond this, is what, what if they had received Jesus? I wonder what would have happened. God fully expected them and, and intended them to. But so, well, then how could Jesus have died and, and saved our sins? I don't know. I just know that God is sovereign enough to work it all out, and that's why it's a thought experiment. You don't have to wonder. But the kingdom is still coming. And we've talked about this at length lately in the books of Thessalonians, that there will be seven years where God will allow the world to be ravaged. And not only the world, there is a special hatred coming towards Israel and the Jews during that time. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. And it's going to get so bad, Jerusalem, it says, will be sacked. The people will be driven into the wilderness. They'll be beheaded and executed until in Zechariah 12.10, it says that God will pour out a spirit of repentance upon his people. And finally, if you connect Zechariah 12.10 with Romans 11.25, that's when that partial hardening will be lifted. And just like Jesus said in Matthew 23, they will finally call on the name of the Lord. Zechariah 12.10 says they will weep for him as you weep for an only son. They'll look on the one that they pierced. Which is crazy because all that was written before Jesus ever lived. Hundreds of years. The only son that was pierced by the people. And they'll weep and mourn for him. They'll realize what they've done, that we killed the Messiah. But then Jesus will return with his bride, the church. He'll defeat the Antichrist's false kingdom. He will show up and he will lay waste to the enemies of Israel, just as the Old Testament has always promised. And after that comes our capital K kingdom. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 20. We've been anticipating this kingdom throughout the Old Testament. The Jews rejected it. The early church was still preaching about it and telling all the people about it, leaning into that salvific side of it. Then in Revelation chapter 20 is when the prophecy of the kingdom comes to its fullness. Revelation 20, I'm going to read the first six verses, okay? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
and after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the ultimate passage on the kingdom of God. This is where we get to see it established. And it's identified here as lasting for 1,000 years which is a millennium, which is, if you ever heard, the millennial kingdom. That's what we're talking about. Daniel 2, verse 44, predicted that, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that the stone that was not cut with hands would smash the feet of the great statue that represented all those empires, and then that stone grew into a mountain and covered the world? That's what Revelation 20 is talking about. Revelation 19 is when the statue is smashed, Pow, the feet of iron and clay are broken. And then in chapter 20 is when that mountain, that stone fills the whole world. We can have some smiles on our face for this part. because This is pretty exciting that someday the government is going to be on his shoulders. You can trust in princes if you want, but it's not ever going to be a happy thing for you. And those days are prophesied to be the most wonderful days the world has ever known there will be peace throughout the world. That's when it talks about people beating their swords into pruning shears and they're going to use the tanks to plow the fields instead of, that part's not in the Bible, but it's the same kind of idea, right? Rather than using them for war. It said that they will worship and that there will be a river that flows out of Jerusalem that heals all the nations and all the devastation wrought in the tribulation will be healed. And that the kingdom will be ruled by not only Jesus, but his, his people, the church. And that there will be living and dying and children that are being born. And as the nations and the world is healed, it says, for a thousand years. It's not heaven yet. I've got to emphasize that. Because when you get to the end of chapter 20, that's when the earth is rolled up and the sky fades away and a new heaven and new earth come. People will say things like, you think Jesus is going to rule on this broken world? Well, yeah. That's been the whole prophecy the whole time is just wait until Jesus shows up. He's going to set it all, all to rights. And we have a weird instinctive reaction to that, but I'm not sure why. The Antichrist has had his turn, and now Jesus is going to show up and say, let me show you how it's done. This is the message that we carry. The kingdom is coming. That kingdom is coming, and you can be part of it. Or you'll be left out of it, and you'll be sent to hell, which is what that passage says. The second death, which we're not going to get into today, but just sounds scary, doesn't it? The second death. Throughout the epistles of the New Testament, trying to give us a broad biblical overview, it talks two main broad ways that it talks about the kingdom related to the church. Number one is that we will inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, Galatians 5 verse 21, Ephesians 5 verse 5 says that we will someday inherit the kingdom. James chapter 2 verse 5 says that we are heirs of the kingdom. And most of those passages are now, shape up. You're going to inherit the kingdom. <laughs> you know, start following Jesus more closely. The other passage is talking about us being brought into or being called to the kingdom. Still with that future aspect of you've been called to this. You're being brought into this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that we are suffering for the kingdom. 
All these verses tell us, number one, that the kingdom is still future. We're still waiting for the kingdom. And number two, that the kingdom is going to be glorious for us. That we're waiting for the kingdom. We're anticipating the kingdom. So that's, a, that's our summary of what the Bible teaches. And we're going to wrap this up with four points before we move on. Number one, the Bible teaches that Israel was promised a kingdom. David will rule. His son will rule from the river to the sea. Number two, Israel rejected that kingdom by crucifying Jesus. Is, is there a more grievous sin? I don't know. But of course, it wasn't just the Jews, was it? The Romans were right there representing all of us Gentiles, too. It's sort of like the Adam and Eve thing. Like, if I was in the garden, I would never have eaten that fruit. Yeah, you would. If I had been around that day, I would never have, have joined in that. If Jesus had come to America in 2021, he would never have been crucified. It's like, okay, all right. So don't, don't think you're going to somehow blame the Jews for that, right? Because we were just as complicit. Number three, the church proclaims the kingdom. We're still carrying that message forward. We're still looking forward to it because number four, the kingdom is still coming. The definition of the kingdom has not changed. We're still waiting for it. That's why we call it kingdom come, right? This is, I think, a very precise description of what the kingdom says. And it sheds light on Palm Sunday. Because, oh yeah, Jesus rode in and they were waving the palm branches. And I asked my kids yesterday, I said, you guys know what Palm Sunday is? And uh, Micah said, that's when they gave Jesus a bunch of palm leaves. Like, kind of. <laughs> like, here, Jesus, have some palm leaves. But like, you're, you're getting it. You're getting it. Slowly. This, this is a, a huge thing. Your king is coming, waving the palm branches, singing, Hosanna. The king had come. Now, what I have just laid out is what's called the premillennial view of the kingdom of God. Don't lose me. We're still doing doctrine, but this is important. The premillennial view of the kingdom of God, meaning we are right now before the millennium. And we believe that the coming of Jesus will be before the millennium. That Jesus Christ will return to set up a literal 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. We believe that literal, by that we mean 1,000 years means 1,000 years, and kingdom means kingdom. That's the premillennial view. Now, there are other ways of understanding this doctrine, and I'll, I'll make it clear. Depending on the person, these disagreements can be very serious or very trivial. Sometimes we get together and we have a nice conversation over a cup of coffee about how we view the, the kingdom of God, but... Depending on how you use this doctrine, it can even be weaponized and lead to some very strong places where we've got to disagree. So it's good to know these things. I'm not going to sit here and, and blast anybody that holds to a different view. I think they're wrong or I wouldn't be preaching this one. But it's important to know. And I'm also going to outline some of the dangers that, that can be run into. They're all related to that word millennial. So we are premillennial. The next view is called amillennialism. This is the belief that the church is the kingdom. That every passage that describes the kingdom is talking about the church symbolically. That there is nothing else to come. Any passage that talks about Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth is either referring to the church or to heaven someday. So amillennial means there's you know, no millennium. That that's all symbolic. And this is more popular in, in most high church denominations. So uh, some of the Episcopalian, Presbyterian denominations believe this. Roman Catholics still hold to what's called an amillennial view. And there's also a strain of Reformed or Calvinist theology that holds to this as well. Now, closely related to that, but different in some significant ways, is called postmillennialism. So we are pre-mill, this is post-mill. 
This is the belief that the church, yes, is the kingdom, but more than that, the church is going to usher in the kingdom through evangelism, through changing social structures, and we will finally get to the place where we have brought the whole world to Jesus, and then that kingdom will last for an indeterminate period of time, maybe a thousand years, and then when we have held the fort long enough, then Jesus will return. So that's post-millennialism. Now, there are a few compelling things to note in favor of these views. Now, both of them you can see kind of the, the hallmark is that the kingdom itself is not an actual kingdom, but it's representative of the, the work of the church. And we've got to answer some of these questions. John 18, 36, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Well, that is concerning, considering everything I just said, right? My kingdom is not of this world. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. People will say, so to be saved is to be in the kingdom, so we shouldn't look for anything else. Revelation 1 verse 6, very similar thing, says that God has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He made us a kingdom. So we are the kingdom. This is the kingdom. But I don't find these objections convincing. First of all, I just gave you the preponderance of, of evidence that the scripture has. Every time the Old Testament says kingdom, it means an actual kingdom. In the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he means kingdom. And the definition the Bible gives us is the one that we want to follow. And when you have the, the majority of Scripture saying one thing, and a few things that maybe seem to confuse us with that, and maybe seems to give the lie to it, you want to try to interpret the difficult-to-understand verses by the easy-to-understand verses. And we could be wrong, but we want to make sure, okay, it has meant kingdom all the way till now. So is there something we need to change, or is there more to it than that? I think, I think you assume some things when you read these verses. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's talking to Pilate. Pilate is saying, are you the king? And Jesus says, it's not that kind of kingdom, Pilate. I'm not here to set up a rebellion against you. I, I think all the other things that Jesus said about his kingdom are not nullified by what he said here to Pilate. I also think later John is the one that's going to tell us there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom that comes. So... I think you would interpret it by that. And I think when it says we've been transferred to the kingdom and we are priests to God and we are the kingdom now, I think you can just as easily say that this is what's called proleptic, right? Kind of like it talks about we have everlasting life. It's like, well, we're going to die and then we're going to receive everlasting life. But there's nothing wrong with talking about it as though it's already happened. You know, sometimes scripture talks about salvation as it's already been accomplished. Sometimes it talks about it as something that will be accomplished, so I think the tense of how these things are talked about is not a real compelling way to get into it, especially when you have so much, as I've already given you. What you have here, and this is really what it boils down to, is it's trading verses back and forth is, is not usually a good way to, to have a discussion. You want to get to where, where is the level of disagreement. The major difference is one of hermeneutics. If you're in our inductive Bible study class, you know this word. A hermeneutic is your philosophy of interpretation. So if you need to write down the definition, write it down. Hermeneutics is the philosophy of interpretation. How do you study the Bible? The premillennial view holds to a consistent literal interpretation. Now that's become a bad word because of some crazy people that don't know how to read poetry. When we say literal, what we mean by that is we take the Bible seriously. 
that when it's giving us figurative language, we read it as figurative language, but we believe there's something real behind that. And that when God says X, he means X. And we're not looking for secret, hidden symbols behind the actual text. So this is what's called the grammatic historical method of interpretation, meaning we let the grammar, what does the text say, combined with the historical context, tell us what it should mean, which is exactly what I just did with you a minute ago. What is the history of how the Bible interpreted these things? How would it have been read to the people who read it first? We don't want to take our way of reading it and put it on them. We want to do the opposite of that. And we apply this not just to salvation, not just to church government or things like that. We want to apply it to eschatology as well, to prophecy as well. And I believe that when you do that, you arrive at a pre-millennial view. That when it says that there will be judgment and then Christ will return and then he'll set up a kingdom, that that's exactly what is going to happen. Now, an amillennial or post-millennial view, when it comes to prophecy relies more on what's called a symbolic or an allegorical interpretation, which is odd to me because most of the, not most, some people who hold to an amillennial or postmillennial view are, are the most ardent advocates of literal interpretation for matters of salvation, for matters of uh, creation even. But then when it comes to prophecy, it, it seems like all bets are off. That when, when, you, when you talk about the kingdom, and we hear kingdom, we know what a kingdom is. We know how the Bible defines a kingdom. We're going to come to that and say, no, 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 there's something symbolic behind that. Or it's an allegory. A thousand years doesn't have to mean a thousand years. Kingdom doesn't have to mean kingdom. Israel doesn't have to mean Israel. And I, I'm not taking shots here. This is acknowledged at what the difference is when it comes to understanding prophecy. It's a hermeneutical difference. And premillennial folks are often accused of being rigid and you just have no imagination when it comes to reading your Bible. You're just going to, you know, focus on what it says. And to be fair, some people have gotten into some weird places by insisting on a wooden, literal understanding of what the text says and not reading the figurative language that's, that is there. Bible's full of symbols. When they're there, we want to read them. You know, we don't believe that Satan is a literal dragon, but we believe that when it describes Satan as a dragon, it's talking about something real, you understand. I think that the amillennial or the postmillennial view take the words like kingdom and spiritualize them to almost nothing. And when you say that the kingdom is here now, well, let's look at the description of the kingdom that we're given in Revelation 20. It says that Satan would be bound. Has Satan been bound? People say, well, the church is, is advancing on the world. Okay, but what about in Ephesians 6 when it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this age? Satan is called the God of this world. He says that the prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So I don't know how you reconcile those two things. But again, if you say that it's only symbolically binding Satan, then again, you're free to ignore that. It says that Jesus will establish righteousness with a rod of iron. Has that been done? It certainly has not. And every time it's been tried, it's been a disaster for humanity, hasn't it? It says that we will rule and reign with Christ. Is the church ruling and reigning? Actually, what Paul told the Thessalonians was, you've got to suffer. You're going to be suffering and persecuted and beaten down until the glory that will come in the kingdom. Jesus said, I will no longer drink of the wine and eat of the bread until I take it in the kingdom with you. So has that happened yet? Has that sort of thing happened? I don't think so. But again, if you don't take those things literally, then you don't have to answer these objections, which is why I have a hard time with that. This view 
And, and again, tossing verses back and forth is not a great way to have a discussion. Neither is tossing back and forth church fathers, but here we go, okay? Uh, the the post-millennial, amillennial view began to prevail around the time of Augustine when he wrote his great work, The City of God. Now, Augustine was a great man of God. I'm not going to say he was evil, but what happened was he began to read these prophecies allegorically. That when it talks about a coming kingdom, he's talking about when the, when the church has finally gained the influence and the sway that it's going to have all over the world. I think it, it might be fair to say that Augustine and some of those guys around him, like Jerome and Origen and some of these folks, were not only influenced by the culture of the day, which read everything symbolically, always looking for the spiritual thing because the flesh is evil. So, and they would accuse people that held to the millennial view that there would be a kingdom. They say, you're reading the Bible in the flesh. You're not reading it in the spirit. And that, that's actually what they said. Because at this time, Constantine was the emperor. The Roman Empire had been given over to Christianity. So can you see how it would be very easy to believe that all the kingdoms of the world are slowly going to become Christianized and then, then Jesus can return? It's actually a very Roman idea when you think about it, right? Well, we know that Rome's going to conquer the world, and now that Rome is Christian, then hey, here we go. The oldest advocate for what we would call the premillennial view today. It wasn't called that then. It was called Kiliasm, if you're interested. But there was a man named Papias, who was a church father and a disciple of John, like John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Revelation. And Papias himself doesn't say this, but you can read it. I believe it was Eusebius, the church historian, who wrote this, talking about all the great church fathers. And he said, Papias was great, but Papias had this weird doctrine where he insisted that when John wrote a thousand years, he meant a literal 1,000-year kingdom, which, of course, we know not to be true, which I find, I find that fascinating. The one guy that knew John and had talked to John after the writing of Revelation had a reputation for telling people he meant it literally. And they thought he was weird and wrong for believing that. When it's like, Don't you think the guy that actually talked to him is the one that we should listen to? spiritualizing, allegorizing. No, it doesn't have to mean that. It doesn't have to mean Israel. It doesn't have to mean the river Euphrates. It doesn't have to mean the city of Jerusalem. It can mean any, any number of symbolic things. And what makes it difficult is there are a lot of times where it'll use names or places symbolically. But to then take it out of that context and apply it to every context, I believe is a faulty hermeneutic. Worst of all, you've seen this done to Israel. Israel doesn't mean Israel. It means the church. Anything that God promised Israel wasn't really promised to them. It was promised to the church. They gave up whatever blessings they might have had, and now they've been given to the church. You see the seeds of truth there? But where does that lead us? leads us to places where we say, and you know what? Israel doesn't deserve their land. Israel doesn't deserve the gospel. And you know what? Israel doesn't even deserve to live because of what they did to Jesus. And I'm not saying that anybody that holds those things is an anti-Semite. I'm saying these are the theories that have been used to justify that in the church. Even though Romans 11 verse 1, Paul says, Has God rejected his people whom he foreknew? Talking about Israel, he says, God forbid. That whole passage is about wrestling with the fact that Israel rejected the Messiah and the church is mostly Gentile. And it says in, in Romans 11, I think it's verse 27, All Israel will be saved when Jesus returns. And Romans 10 is all about him, I believe, maybe chapter 11. He's telling the, the Gentiles... Don't you get uppity towards those Jews and think that you're better than them. He says, you were just a wild branch that was grafted into the tree that was already there. So don't you start boasting 
against the, the stalk of the tree, right? I think there's more of, of tradition, there's more supposition to these theories. I think it's easy to read kingdom and think, yeah, well, we're the kingdom. And the, and the kingdom is spreading through us. And we're going we're gonna to take the world for Jesus. You, you take a lot of these things that I, I agree we should take the gospel around the world. But to attach the idea of the kingdom, this is what the kingdom is, I think that's not what the Bible teaches. And it sounds really spiritual to deny some of the things that the Bible seems to plainly say. I've heard folks advocate for amill or post-mill, mostly post-millennial, I guess, here. But they'll say, you know, some Christians believe that the church is going to have a great falling away at the end and that there's going to be a great disaster before Jesus comes back. To which I then say, but it says in 2 Thessalonians that the end cannot come until the apostasy has come. But if you read that symbolically and you say, oh, the apostasy has already happened. It happened when they crucified Jesus. But he says it in the future. Yeah, well, you've got to read it. You've got to read it figuratively. Then all of a sudden you're able to toss that out. It sounds spiritual to say Jesus can't rule on a fallen world. I've heard people say, I just can't believe that Jesus would rule on a fallen world. He has to rule in a fallen world. He's promised to rule in a fallen world. He's going to restore the world. Is he going to create a new world and then going to heal the nations that are brand new and were never broken to begin with? But again, if it's all spiritual, it's easy to shunt that to the side. I think the burden of proof is entirely upon these other groups to prove that when it says 1,000, it doesn't mean 1,000. That when it says Israel, it means something other than Israel. That when it says kingdom, it means something other than kingdom. And it gets thrown in my face a lot. It's like, well, you believe that Jesus is going to have an actual kingdom? Well, that's what it says. Well, it doesn't mean that. Well, then that's on you to prove that to me. It's not on me to prove that it means what it says. It's on you to prove that it doesn't mean what it says. I don't believe in premillennialism anymore. So you believe that when it says Jesus will set up a kingdom that will last for a thousand years, it means something other than that? What bounds that exegesis? This is what concerns me. If we're going to start reading the Bible symbolically and figuratively and allegorically, where, where does it end? Oh, that's a slippery slope argument. You better believe it is, because we've seen that. Now, when you start reading this symbolically, why not read it symbolically over here? If you can read this allegorically, why not read it allegorically over here? If that's for a different time and doesn't belong to you, then why not somewhere else? And, and most amillennialism tends to be I, you could almost say nonchalant about eschatology because they believe that Jesus is going to come back. We have no idea when. In the meantime, it's going to be more or less like this until the end comes. So th there's folks that want to argue about it because there's a, there's a doctrinal thing to discuss there. But I will say this. Post-millennialism has its ugly side because if you believe that it is up to you to bring the kingdom about, that opens up all kinds of bad teachings. This is what some uh, hyper-Pentecostals get into, that by the signs and wonders, by the healing, by the miracles God is doing, we're going to take the whole world for Jesus Christ. And if you reject that, then you're, you're resisting the kingdom of God. And this is sometimes what's called kingdom now theology. We're going to bring that kingdom up there and bring it down here. There may be some slivers of truth to that, but you don't want to push it too far. That it's your responsibility to go around the world, you, you, can, you can break your spirit doing that. Worse, you get something called liberation theology, which is this is a, a political strain of theology. And it, it is attached to different social groups. And it's very much tied to 
uh, Marxism in a lot of ways. So you have liberation theology would be Hispanic liberation theology or black liberation theology or feminist liberation theology. And I, I believe there's a queer liberation theology referring to homosexuality as well. Because that is saying the kingdom is when we tear down unjust social structures and put up new ones in their place. So now not only do you have a good reason to start a revolution and work against the authorities that are in place, you have a biblical mandate to do that. And you've seen an upsurge of this recently as people have become more concerned with social structures and people talking about that. Liberation theology is right over there to welcome everybody into it, which has shocked me because... People that I, I know and people that I've seen publicly and like, guys, this is liberation theology. You should know better. Th there are folks that will say, depending on the strain, I, I remember hearing one guy, I believe that he was a Hispanic liberation theologian, that the, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith is a Western and white tool of oppression to keep down other nations and other people groups. And that if you preach salvation by grace through faith and forgiveness of sins, you're using it to avoid the reality of the political structure so we can't teach that doctrine anymore. Does that just not sound satanic to you? We're going to stop preaching forgiveness? We're going to stop preaching the eternal life? That is a post-millennial strain. Again, not everybody that is into that gets into this stuff. Okay, But there it is. When you read the word kingdom, symbolically, you can make it mean whatever you want. But when you read it as the Bible teaches it to us, the conclusion is obvious, and it's actually much more simple. You kind of usually want to go with the simple thing. And when it says kingdom, it means kingdom. And, and that all these promises that God made through 39 books of the Old Testament, they mean what they mean. Well, they rejected their king, so they can't have it anymore. But that's not what the Bible says. He says, your house is left to you desolate until, Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. But now that we know all these things, there's one more thing that I want to close with here. That the amillennials and the postmillennials are right when they emphasize the spiritual nature of the kingdom. This is something that premillennial folks can lose because they spend so much time trying to defend their position, they start cutting off the parts that might seem to be in common. Well, we don't want to do that. This is what Israel missed. This is why Jesus spent so much time talking about morality when he talked about the kingdom or about prayer or about familiarity with God. There is a profound spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And doesn't that just make sense? When Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth, he's going to set it up this way. So Jesus spends a lot of time talking. This is how God wants things done. Luke 17. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's drawing their attention to what truly makes up the kingdom. And he did this over and over because what did they want? They wanted a political king. They wanted political solutions. When is the kingdom coming? When are you going to establish? And Jesus is like, guys, it's not about that. It's about the inner man. And until we've gotten that right, there is going to be no actual kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted from Joel, which was a prophecy that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was part of the coming kingdom, the day of the Lord. And so he's saying, now you get to taste the beginning of the kingdom. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. 
Romans 8.23 says that the Holy Spirit comes to us as a first fruits of the kingdom. It talks about how the whole world is groaning and waiting for the restoration that Jesus is going to bring. And he says, and we're groaning too because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That that has been put in us now. 2 Corinthians 1.22 calls the Spirit a guarantee. The Holy Spirit brings the kingdom and lordship of God to your life before you experience the kingdom all around you. That's the fruit of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. This is the cool part. This is where we get to get excited, okay? The Holy Spirit allows you to live like you're in the kingdom now, even though the kingdom hasn't come yet. How awesome is that? The Holy Spirit has come to bring that salvation, to bring that peace, to bring that healing, physical and spiritual, that is going to characterize the kingdom. Fellowship with Christ. This is sometimes called the now and not yet of the kingdom. Where you read throughout the New Testament and they're saying, now we're waiting for this, but in the meantime, we've got all this. But Paul would characterize it in 1 Corinthians 13 as right now we see in a mirror dimly or darkly. I like the way the old King James has that. We see in a mirror darkly. It's almost like when Jesus healed that blind man. The first time he said, I, I see people like trees walking. There's, there's something there. When the Holy Spirit comes to your life and he begins to save you and regenerate you, you become that representative of God's kingdom, just like Jesus was a representative of the, God's kingdom. Now, Jesus had not established the kingdom yet, just like he has not established it now, but you get to taste it. I get so excited when I talk about this. This is why we can't be afraid of the Holy Spirit, because that's his job is to take what is coming and bring it to you. He can transform your family. He can transform your life and forgive you of your sins and give you peace and power. Rivers of living water. So someday there's going to be a physical kingdom. But hey, what about now? Are you living with Jesus as your king now? This is why I'm okay with us using terminology like we're going to spread the kingdom around the world. Although I know it's going to come really later. In a way, when the, when the Spirit comes to a person's heart, Jesus becomes king over that person. And they start to live as if Jesus was king over their life. And they begin to experience all those blessings, the first fruits, the taste that the Bible calls it. We taste it now. On Palm Sunday, they hailed him as king. But they wanted a political solution, not a heart change. Ooh, doesn't that sound familiar? Here comes Jesus. He's going to fix all our political problems. And Jesus said, nope, actually, I want to change your heart. Fine, nail him to a cross. And we see that all over the place. It's happened countless times in history. When Jesus helps us solve our political issues, we love Jesus. But the minute Jesus starts messing around with our stuff, get him out of here. You see this now, don't you? You got some people that are saying, away with the church. And another whole group of people that you do need to watch out for that are saying, no, we need the church because it is the foundation of our culture. That's not why we need the church. That's not why we need Jesus. Jesus is not the foundation of your culture. Jesus is the Lord of your life. And if you're not going to submit to that, then it's not going to do you any good. And if the church continues to resist and push and say, no, it's about your heart and your life being changed, then they're going to be done with us too, eventually. They were all shouting crucify. Pharisees, Sadducees, Romans, everybody on Good Friday. Someday there's going to be a kingdom. But if you do not have the Spirit within you and your Jesus as Lord, you're going to miss it. The good news is that Jesus can come into your heart or your family now and make you, maybe we'll call it a colony. You're, you're a colony of the kingdom of God. That you're, you're making this area of your life look like the kingdom. 
And someday you're going to die, and someday your family will maybe move, and the devil will move in and contest that ground, and it's going to continue until Jesus shows up, and then he's going to tie up Satan for a thousand years and say, no more. Let's see what unrestrained righteousness looks like. So as Jesus taught us to pray, let's end by saying the words of the Lord's Prayer where he said, Thy kingdom come.